From Hephaestus to Vulcan, many cultures had their own version of a blacksmith god, and for those that didn't, they had some kind of creature or helper who did their blacksmithing for them. But who were these figures of mythology and legend? Let's find out in this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore. Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host, Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. I hope that you are safe, I hope that you are well and I hope that you aren't crawling the walls with boredom. And we are just going to basically go straight into this week's episode, which is all about blacksmith gods as part of Maker Month, and also the second part to last week's episode, which was on blacksmiths of legend and folklore. Now, this is quite an interesting thing for me, because when I was doing all the research for last week's episode, it was all this, ooh, smiths are malevolent, and smiths are evil, and people ostracise smiths. And then this week it's all, smiths are cool! And I think it's going to become very apparent very quickly which side I fall off on. Now, there are, as I said in the introduction, a lot of cultures that have some kind of blacksmithing deity. One of the ones I was going to include is Ptah from ancient Egypt, who is occasionally sometimes twinned with one of the gods we are going to focus on this week. And he is sometimes seen as being a patron of sort of metallurgy and magic and metalwork and, and all that kind of thing. But I thought I'd rather pick the more obvious ones so rather than ones with a tangential link to blacksmithing. I'm picking the gods or mythological creatures who are associated actually with the act of blacksmithing. So we're going to start off with the most obvious one. And if you do Google blacksmith gods, this is the first one who will come up. I'm a big fan. And this is Hephaestus, who is the Greek god of all things crafty. Whether that's carpentry, sculpture, metallurgy or metalworking, this is probably one of the reasons why he's linked with Ptah in ancient Egypt. But he's most often associated with blacksmithing and whenever you see images of him nine times out of ten, he's at his forge with his anvil and his hammer. Now, he's one of the sons of Zeus and Hera, although there are various versions of this story where he's actually only the the son of Hera or he's only the son of somebody else but generally speaking he's the son of Zeus and Hera although he does have a less than divine physical appearance which initially causes Hera to reject him. This is quite rare among the gods because they're nearly always described as being perfect but for some reason Hephaestus is lame and few can agree if this is a condition he's born with or if it's because of the fact that Hera when seeing him after she's delivered him, decides he's not good enough and throws him from Mount Olympus. So clearly it could be either of those things. Now, thankfully, he is rescued by Thetis, who's also the mother of Achilles, and she more or less raises him and he learns how to become a smith and he goes on to be awesome. But he's also somewhat surprisingly married to Aphrodite, despite the fact that she has many affairs with other beings, both God and mortal alike. One of them is Adonis, and the most famous one is perhaps Ares, the god of war. And in Mythos, Stephen Fry actually tells one version of the story about how Hephaestus won Aphrodite's hand. Now, Hephaestus had been rejected by Hera, like I say. So while he's living with Thetis, he learns the art of smithing, 
And then he sends this beautiful golden throne to Olympus. And when Hera sits in it, it imprisons her. And because no god can undo the enchantment of another, basically Zeus has to promise the hand of Aphrodite to whoever can free his wife. I'm going to assume he was probably getting a fair amount of stick from Hera from the fact that he couldn't do anything to help her. Now, everybody did assume that Ares, god of war, would be able to get Hera free. So everyone just assumed that Ares was going to be able to marry Aphrodite. But then, obviously, Hephaestus turns up and he undoes the enchantment. And then they're like, oh, well, we're going to have to give Aphrodite to him then. So he does end up accepted on Olympus because everyone has to admit that the throne is actually pretty cool, despite the fact it's just imprisoned Hera and... That's how Hephaestus ends up married to Aphrodite. As I say, there are other variations of the myth, but they don't really concern us here. I just mention it to show how he uses blacksmithing and his art as a way of like earning entry back to where he should have been originally, because obviously he should have been on Mount Olympus with the other gods. And it's through how good he is and how skilled he is that he ends up getting back to his rightful position. Now, as I say... We're not going to look at the other stories because there's millions of them about him and Aphrodite. And we're also going to ignore the tales of his attempts to woo Athena because, again, I'm not wanting to dwell on god gossip, essentially. But instead, we're going to look at Hephaestus's role as a blacksmith because that's what this episode's about. And while the legends that we looked at last week, as I said earlier, all look at the malevolent reputation of blacksmith, Hephaestus actually plays quite a vital role in Greek mythology. He's nearly always regarded as being incredibly highly talented. He's also quite the team player because he works well with the Cyclops in his forge and he's also famed for his inventions. And even more, the Homeric hymns actually explain that he taught men glorious crafts throughout the world, letting them live a peaceful life. So where Athena basically goes around teaching women the crafts that they would need to know, like spinning and weaving, both of which are coming up in upcoming episodes, Hephaestus teaches men the crafts that they would need to know. And before you start going, ah, gender stereotyping, because that kind of annoyed me a little bit as well at first, you do need to bear this in mind, that Hephaestus is actually sometimes considered inferior to Athena, who's the noble goddess of wisdom. But the idea is Hephaestus is basically going around and he's passing on these skills to humanity, which is quite cool. Now, Hephaestus isn't just a teacher, although that is obviously part of his role. He also makes all manner of mythological weapons, which then appear throughout the other Greek myths. And you'll absolutely have heard of a lot of these. But this is what makes him so important, because obviously he's a creator. And he creates, among other things, Poseidon's trident, the thunderbolts of Zeus, Athena's Aegis, the winged helmet and sandals of Hermes, Eros's bow and arrows and then weapons for Achilles which are commissioned by Thetis and this is where it gets quite interesting because a lot of them you can't imagine them without these things that they've got so you imagine Poseidon without his trident imagine Eros without his bow and arrow he literally couldn't do his job if he didn't have his bow and arrow so it's quite cool that Hephaestus makes all of these things that enable other gods to then do what they do or be good at what they do. And the funny thing is, despite this talent that he's got for making weapons, he's largely quite a peaceful and kind god. And I think every time I read stories about him, apart from one of his interactions with Athena, he always sort of strikes me as actually being a bit more approachable than some of the other gods. And he does have a whole range of epithets, as the gods usually do. And one of them is the lame one, which seems a bit mean. 
He's also described as being shrewd and of many devices, and I think that refers to his inventor status. And apparently at one point he ends up making a whole series of automata to help him in his forge because he can't get around as quickly as he'd like, and I just think that's marvellous. But while some of his titles do focus on this lame foot, most of them focus on how clever he is or how talented he is, which is nice. And artists nearly always portray him as being quite muscular with a beard, usually holding his hammer. And apparently it was quite common to put statues of him near your hearth in ancient Greece. He is also considered the god of fire, and it is from his forge that Prometheus then steals the flames to give to humanity. And occasionally you will see him in classical art, being one of the the gods actually tying Prometheus to the rock where he then endures his... I wouldn't say eternal, but almost eternal punishment to have his liver torn out every day and then have it regrown. It all happens again and again. Anyway, side issue. I might do an episode on Prometheus. Let me know if you want one. Back to Hephaestus. Some people believe that he actually made his forge under a volcano and every time there was an eruption or just some kind of, you know, how volcanoes kind of bubble and whatnot, it would let people know that he was at work. Now, his Roman counterpart is Vulcan and although there are similarities between the myths, I'm not really going to repeat them here because, as I say, there are so many similarities and I think the biggest difference between them is the fact that Vulcan's often more closely linked with fire than Hephaestus is. He's sometimes described as a fire god rather than a blacksmith god, but that's why I focused on Hephaestus and not Vulcan. But while Hephaestus is a god and a blacksmith, in Norse mythology, the gods let other people do their blacksmithing for them. And we did meet Wayland the smith last week, although he didn't work directly for the gods. He was just a blacksmith in Norse mythology. But if we want to find out who made the fantastical objects in the Norse myths, we've got to turn our attention to the realm of the dwarves. And they lived under rocks or underground quite far from Asgard. And their home is often referred to as Nidorvillir, although Snorri Sturluson's prose Edda actually calls it Svartalfheim. Now, two of them, Brock and Sindri, who sometimes called Eitri, were brothers, and Brock's name actually means metalworker, while Sindri's name means sprayer of sparks. And another group of dwarves were known as the Sons of Ivaldi. And basically what you need to know is both groups were talented blacksmiths, as most dwarves are in legends and mythology. Now, Loki being Loki, he bet Brock that the sons of Ivaldi made better items than Brock and Sindri did. And he might have had a point here because the sons of Ivaldi had made a weapon for Odin that always hit its target, a ship that could cross sea, land or air without any problems, and even a brand new head of hair for the goddess Sif after Loki cut her hair off. So, you know, there's this bet being made. And it was an unusual one because Loki actually bet his head. Now, despite the high stakes involved, Brock actually accepted the bet and promised that he and Sindri would make more powerful magical objects than the ones I've just mentioned. And they actually make three, which include Mjolnir, the Hammer of Thor. Now, the gods obviously are quite chuffed with all the things that have been made for them, and they find in Brock and Sindri's favour, which obviously means that Loki owes them his head. Being Loki, he then pointed out that he'd promised them his head, not his neck, and in cutting off his head, they would be damaging his neck, which wasn't part of the deal. So the dwarves obviously relent and they're like, fine, whatever. But they satisfy themselves with sewing his mouth shut, which I'm sure must have been quite the relief for the rest of the gods. But anyway, in some versions of the legend, Brock and Sindri make the ship, the spear and the golden hair as well. And it's Loki's bet that they can't make better things than what they've already made, if that makes sense. And you might be wondering why the discrepancy? 
Well, if we actually look at the Prose Edda, Sturlson explains that, and I quote, Loki went to those dwarves who were called sons of Ivaldi, end quote, for the first treasures, and then he goes off to, quote, the dwarf named Brock, end quote, that Sindri couldn't make equally precious items. So by dividing them up the way that they do, it does imply that there's two groups of dwarves that are set up in competition. Now, either way, it is the only time that we actually hear of either the sons of Ivaldi or Brock and Sindri in the prose edda. And bearing in mind, considering the quite awesome stuff that they make, I can't really help wondering what else they were getting up to why have they not been mentioned it is just interesting though that there is a there is another story involving blacksmiths and a necklace that they make that the goddess Freya gets her eye on and they won't sell it to her unless she spends the night with each of them in turn and it shows how much she really wants this necklace because she does but it doesn't name which of the dwarves they are unfortunately so I've no idea if that's Brock and Sindri again or if it's anyone else but this is where the, the Norse gods, rather than getting their hands dirty and doing their own smithing, just find people who are good at it and get them to do it instead. Now, we are going to head to Ireland for our final blacksmith gods because blacksmiths in Ireland were, and I quote, seen as a person with prestige, end quote. And Juliana Grigg does urge caution because the texts that deal with blacksmith mythology actually come from the 7th to 9th centuries, and they were recorded by monastic scribes. So basically, we've not got any idea how reliable they actually are, and Grigg even refers to them as pseudo-history. But still, I want to include them, because as I noted last week in the other episode about blacksmiths, Eamon Doyle noted the importance of the blacksmith in Irish folklore, because they were long believed to have magic powers. So I do think that if we're going to go looking at blacksmith gods, we should really have a look at Irish mythology for that. Now there are actually a couple of contenders because why not and one of them is the Irish god Lou who presided over arts and crafts, magic, commerce and a whole other range of things as well as smithing. Now according to Patty Wigington Lou wasn't a war god but he was considered a warrior thanks to his battlefield skills and he does win an entire battle and become king so I think we can give him that one. And Julius Caesar was writing about the gods that were encountered outside of Rome, actually equated Lou with Mercury rather than Vulcan, which is quite interesting because obviously Vulcan would be the obvious choice as a smith god, whereas Mercury's a little bit more of a jack-of-all-trades kind of god. So the multitude of skills that Lou has, and also I should point out Mercury as well, does make him quite the favourite of artists and artisans. And it's at this point that we do think about the idea of blacksmiths as having magical gifts because when you think about it, they're taking this lump of metal which has come from underneath the ground, so it's the element of earth, and then they're using fire to bend it to their will. And to be honest, blacksmithing isn't actually a million miles away from what most people assume alchemy to be. But if Lou wasn't the specific Celtic smith god, who was? Well, much as the Norse gods had Brock and Sindri, Lou had Govnu. And some people actually refer to him as being a god in his own right. And here he presides over blacksmiths, metalworking, fire, brewing and weapon making, which I think actually make a little bit more of a logical collection of things to be in charge of than some of the other ones that I've seen. And Juliana Grigg refers to him as the manufacturer helper hero, but she does find it quite difficult to pinpoint when he sort of became deified and became a god in his own right. Now, along with his brothers, Govnu made weaponry for Lou and his brother specialised in silversmithing and carpentry, so they become almost a triple god in a lot of ways. And one of their collective specialities was the spear. And indeed, Govnu actually promises that, and I quote, every wound will be fatal, end quote. Now, the Tuatha de Danann had many battles with the Formori, and if you're not sure who they are, 
it doesn't really matter for the point of this, but the Tuatha Dé Nan essentially are the forerunners to what we now kind of see as fairies and this, the she and people like that, but side issue. Point is, Govnu was working on the side of the Tuatha Dé Nan and they seemed invincible and the Fomori just couldn't beat them and couldn't figure out what was going on and why they were so difficult to defeat. And Ruadan, who was one of the sons of the Fomori, went to spy on Govnu at work and he realised the way that Govnu was working, that there was no way that the Fomori could ever beat them. And basically the Fomori would never win while Govnu lived to equip them with weapons. So they decide rather than trying to just murder all the Tuatha de Danan, it would be easier to just get rid of Govnu. So Roadin tries to kill Govnu in his own forge with one of his own spears. And the spear, go, apparently in the legend, goes straight through the smith. Govnu doesn't die, but he picks it up and throws it back. And then the wounded Rodan actually later dies of his injury. But Govnu goes to a nearby healing spring and ends up cured of his injury so he can live on and keep making more battles and so on. And eventually they end up winning that one again. But this tale essentially demonstrates the value of the blacksmith to Celtic society. And in Celtic magic, DJ Conway explains that blacksmiths held a high place in the social order thanks to their knowledge of metal magic. So in this case, they're not actually working the metal, they're working with the metal, if that makes sense. And despite the legends of both Lou and Govnu, Conway actually claims that blacksmiths dedicated their work to the goddess Skarhax. And she's basically a legendary warrior woman who's also the patroness of blacksmiths. And elsewhere, the smith proliferates. And in some legends, Lou's foster father was a smith, so he was raised by one. And versions of Bridget become a feminine form of Govnu as a patron goddess of blacksmith, which is quite cool. And Greg also notes Govnu's role as a hospitalier or holder of feasts. And at these events, he serves these guests a drink of immortality and makes them act as a cupbearer, which is quite interesting because this is the same role given to Hephaestus in the Iliad. So it's quite funny how you've got these two completely different sets of mythology in ancient Greece and ancient Ireland, and they've both got this idea of the magical nature or the special nature of the blacksmith god. And it's all a far cry from the tales of malevolent smiths that we encountered last week, tricking the devil to learn the secrets of smithing. And these tales of blacksmith gods, I would argue, are also quite far from the legend of St Dunstan, using his smithing prowess to secure safety for his followers from the devil. And instead, the blacksmith gods and the smiths that serve them craft these magical weapons and wondrous items. These both help and harm others, which reflects the often capricious nature of the gods themselves. And perhaps that's a wider metaphor for the blacksmith himself. He can make a plough, a horseshoe, or other items that will make a person's life easier. Or he can fashion swords, armour and axes to wage a life of war. And with these two extremes available from the same skill set, it's little wonder that the blacksmith goes on to become such an otherworldly figure. Now, that is the end of this week's episode. I hope that you've enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed writing it. And I think you can probably tell that her face is, is totally my favourite. I am sorry to have favouritism, but there we go. That's how it is. Next week, we're going to be having a look at the folklore of weaving and legends and mythology and so on weaving. Then it'll be spinning and then shoemaking, which was a request on Twitter. So that's going to round out make a month. I am toying with two different ideas for what to do in June. So I have been asked if I'll look at things like folklore around like health and medicine and so on, which I think would be quite timely given what's going on at the moment. 
or we could do something a little bit more witchcraft related. So do please let me know on Instagram, Twitter, email, wherever you find me basically and let me know what you'd rather have, sort of health and medicine or witchcraft related stuff. There'll probably be some crossover, let's be honest, and I'll get on with planning what we're going to do in June. So I hope that you're marvellous, I hope that you stay well and I hope that you're back here next week because I'd love to enjoy your company again while we have a look at the folklore, legends and mythology of weaving. So until then, my friends, cheerio.